If you've ever played competitive sports, you've probably had your coach say this phrase, control what you can control. Whether it is your nutrition, hydration throughout the day, how you train, and making sure you get a good night's sleep before a big game. For Adam Hogue, this phrase has a different meaning for him. Adam is known for his career as a Chicago sports broadcaster, but today, instead of sports, we are going to be talking about someone who means the world to him, and that is his son, James. James was diagnosed with 22Q one month after being delivered early at 31 weeks. Adam is here to share his journey as a father and how he is learning to control what he can control while navigating his son's 22Q. I am honored to introduce you to Adam. Welcome to the 22Q podcast. I am your host, Becky White, and today I have Adam Hogue with me. He is known for his incredible coverage of the Chicago Bears and has also covered baseball and football in Chicago since 2008. He can also be heard on the Hogue and John's podcast, but today we are going to be discussing something other than sports. Adam will be sharing his son, James, with us today and his 22Q journey. So Adam, thank you so much for being on and please introduce yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me, Becky. I'm excited to, to uh, talk about all this stuff. It's uh, I'm usually doing this on a daily basis, talking about sports. So it's good to actually talk about life sometimes. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. So, um, I mean, you covered a lot of it there that I'm a sports reporter in Chicago. And my day-to-day is basically uh, football and family. Um, but my son, James, was, was born in... 2014 so he's like eight and a half now like I think a lot of people listening to this and going through the 22q life uh we had no idea this was coming and it's I mean this I'm sure we'll get into the story and all that but uh he's right now he's a happy eight-year-old that goes to school and but we've certainly been through a lot of things right no of course and if you had to use one word to describe James what would it be um probably caring yeah. Like he's it's sweet. He's like the sweetest little boy. We have a one and a half year old daughter now, and he's like just the best big brother. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think I think I think either caring or sweet mm-hmm. define him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a common trait among most of the families I've been meeting, is they're just sweethearts. Yeah. I, I think there's like a certain innocence that maybe lasts a little longer, but yeah, he's always been that way. Like nice. in the for all his challenges, like any teacher that's ever been around him or anything is always just like, oh, we love James so much because he's just the sweetest little boy. Yeah. Uh, and we love that about him. Yeah. They are little heart stealers, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, please tell me also like a little bit about your family. I'd love to hear. My wife is from Wisconsin originally. Um, I went to school up in Wisconsin that's where we met and but we live in the northern suburbs of chicago obviously james is eight and then i mentioned our daughter livy we olivia we call her livy uh and she's like a year and a half so uh we've we've two little cats roam around the house we used to have a dog um but she passed away a couple years ago now we're just i think we're gonna stick with the cats sorry about that the the kids love them too and you know nice then i mean a lot of it's probably like normal family stuff. Like we're yeah. running around, uh, James plays <laughs> basketball. He plays, uh, 
he he's swimming right now. We got baseball coming up, so he does a lot of that stuff. And so we're we're uh, in a lot of ways normal parents of an eight year old, just shuttling him to wherever yep. he's got to go after school every day. That's great, awesome. So yeah, let's dive into your story. You know, when did you first find out about the pregnancy? And so yeah, please share. Yeah, so our story's uh pretty crazy before even like any of the 22 Q stuff happened. Um, my wife actually needed surgery about 19 weeks into the, the pregnancy because of an ovarian torsion where, you know, that was terrifying. And, you know, they were debating because that's like right on the edge of where they'll actually do a surgery. And, yeah, you know, there were like two options, like do a somewhat of a risky surgery while you're pregnant. I mean, I'm sure any surgery is risky when you're pregnant and, or, just like basically, basically go on bed rest the rest of the pregnancy and expose the baby to all kinds of painkillers, which is not a great option either. So we ended up doing the surgery. Um, it went fine, but she ended up having an infection a little bit later and wasn't the end of the world, but it just like kind of everything from that point on was just like hard in hindsight. It's kind of like those you know, you don't know what you don't know thing, but in hindsight, like other doctors have told us, like, you guys should have been high risk right away after that surgery, but they never treated it that way. So like, we didn't really know, you know, how careful we should be or, or whatever. So early July of 2014, where we usually go up to Minnesota, where we have some family for the 4th of July. And uh, we spent some time up there and we were actually in uh, the North woods of Wisconsin on uh, July 13th, which was supposed to be the morning we were driving back home to Chicago and Krista woke up at like 5 a.m. like basically having contractions. And at this point, we were at 31 weeks. We're also about an hour and a half away from any hospital. <laughs> oh so because we're like really in the woods, uh, just where uh, my aunt and uncle have a cabin. So we end up driving to Wausau, a town called Wausau, Wisconsin. And uh, fortunately, they have a great NICU there, which we didn't know. We were just trying to get to the, you know, the nearest hospital. Oh and, you know, they did everything they could to prevent the birth from happening because he was so premature, but eventually it had to happen. So the next morning on July 14th, essentially what turned out to be an emergency C-section happened and James was born. So that then it became a very... Um, confusing month of time. First of all, we're about four and a half hours from home and we're stuck, you know, we're stuck there essentially in, you know, how insurance is, uh, they wouldn't move him unless there was a medical reason for it. That entire month, they're like, he's obviously very premature. And so there's always issues that come with that. But there was one thing that was kind of confusing the doctors, and that was that he wasn't ever really taking to a, a bottle, you know, those really small ones that they'd give a, a premature baby. But every time he would try to swallow, his blood oxygen level would drop dramatically. And while he was like growing and all, you know, growing quite dramatically, obviously for a premature baby over that course of that month, like that wasn't getting better. And at some point, a doctor who's actually from Chicago that was coming up to that hospital like once a month or something like that. He came in one day and just says like his mouth looks small. And that was the observation. Mm -hmm. And it, and of course it's like I'm sure all parents listening to this can can relate. Like you immediately get very defensive of your 
baby. And you're like, well, yeah, his mouth's small. He's a, he's, he's like the size of my hand. Of course he has a small mouth, but yeah. we don't, you know, we don't know the difference. And so they, they ended up taking pictures of, you know, a bunch of pictures of his face and um, they actually sent them down to UW Madison. I, I can't even remember the exact timeline. It was at least a week, maybe a little bit longer than that. And they were like, uh, well, we want to test for, well, I think they just did like a generic genetic test or something like that, along with the the photos. And so anyway, long story short is they come back sort out of nowhere one day and a bunch of doctors come in the room and you're like, just sort of, no, that's not a good thing. And um, they, they tell us about the Jordan syndrome 22 Q, which at that point we've never heard of. And mm-hmm. um, that's how we got the diagnosis. It was that it was actually pretty much exactly one month to the day from his birth. Wow. And, and uh, I guess the only silver lining at that moment, because obviously you're scared, you don't really know what this means. But the only silver lining at that point was that qualified as the medical reason to transport him back to Chicago. So the next day they put him in ambulance and took him to Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago, uh, which has a 22Q clinic and was a little bit more equipped to handle the things that he needed to need from that point to be able to come home eventually in a weird way that actually made things more complicated because we, we live in the suburbs and now we got to commute into the city every day just to see our baby when it was like, Oh, we're out in the country basically. And it was nice and easy. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's how it all started. And then he ended up doing six more weeks at the NICU at Lurie. So it was a total of 10 weeks before he finally was able to come home. That is a lot, Adam. Yeah. That is and some of it, lot. some of it was the prematurity. And then some of it was, it was really a combination of probably both. Right. It was the, uh, how did you get through it? Or were you on autopilot during that time? Uh, yeah, I think a lot of autopilot. The other tough wrinkle was I had just started a new job, like literally the month before this all happened. They were awesome. But the, the thing about July 14th was this is 10 days before bears training camp starts. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like just the way my job cycle works in a calendar year. Like when training camp starts, like there's no vacation time until the Super Bowl's over. So <laughs> my job was awesome about that, but I was commuting a little bit. The bears at the point were still having training camp about an hour and a half South of Chicago. So I was trying like once or twice a week to still go down to training camp for a day or two and come back because the thing about the NICU and a lot of NICU parents can, can speak to this. Like it is a lot of sitting around and there's not a lot happening other than you're just trying to do whatever you can for your baby, which at some point is, is, you know, the, the doctors and the nurses have to do a lot of that. So, and my, so my wife was essentially staying back there while I was coming back and forth a lot during that month. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So that just added a, a tough wrinkle to the whole thing too, but we, yeah, yeah we got through it. Um, looking back on it, I'm not really sure. It just, yeah. it's kind of a, kind of a blur, but uh, my wife was awesome and she yeah. was able to take a lot of time off stay up there and be with them every day too. So, and, but at some point, like I had to, I had to work at the same time too, because yeah. you can't really have both parents off for 10 weeks. So no. yeah, it was, it was a little difficult, but it was uh good life lessons too. I think along the way. Of course, there's a lot that comes with being a NICU parent 
and you don't know until you're there and you've had this newfound respect, the medical staff that works there day in and day out. Um, but thank you for sharing that with me. And after you guys finally got home and got to the 22Q clinic at in Chicago, did you feel like you were finally in the right place and getting some answers or were you completely overwhelmed with all of the specialists? Tell me about that. Yeah. Um, that's a good question because yeah, once we got to Lurie is when they were pretty much doing daily tests because they're te at that point they're testing everything in James's case. Like I think the, the lesion is relatively small. Um, he had a lot of medical issues when he was younger, which we can get into, but I mean, it, it does seem like, for the most part, a lot of them were able to be corrected. Mm -hmm. um, and so, what were some of those? Yeah. So that's what I was going to say is like, there was, you know, this small ones, like I remember they came back with like a small concern about his kidney, which was kind of funny because, well, not funny, but it's like, they ended up not wanting to do anything about it. And you get so many different things that some of them you actually end up forgetting about. And then there was like three years later, I remember they were like, he was, you know, taking a little bit longer to get potty trained or something. And they're like, well, they'd look back at the file and be like, well, there was that one day where there was that one blip on the kidney. Like we should check that out. And, and we're like, I, I don't know. It's like, I'm pretty sure everything's fine there, but um, compared to some other things. So he had um, a right aortic arch was the, was the biggest one, which is a, a somewhat common 22Q symptom and, um, and a VSD, which he actually still has. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he, um, when he was two and a half, we ended up getting the aortic arch repaired, which was a six hour surgery at Lurie. Um, they also had to move one of the arteries around too. So that was a pretty scary surgery, but also, obviously anytime you have anything going on with your heart and some type of heart surgery, it's a big deal. And then the, just being in like the, the cardiac ICU in the recovery, the next couple of days, it's both like really, really hard, but also amazing to see how much like a little toddler essentially can just overcome something like that in a matter of days. I have this really cool video I still have on my phone that, like I edited of each day mm -hmm. um, and even just like you could see the expressions of uh, in his face because like the first, I forget if it was 24 or 48 hours, but he had a chest tube in after the surgery and like just the difference between when the chest tube was in and when it comes out, like it was, it was like miraculous. He's like all of a sudden like back to being James, just like that. Um, so right. it, that was just a, kind of a crazy thing to go through, but at the same time just shows you some of the miracles that they could pull off with medicine. It, yeah. It's like essentially like just redoing the plumbing in your heart because the, for those that aren't familiar with the, uh, the arch, it basically wraps around. The problem is it was wrapping around his esophagus. And so that was part of his early swallow problems. And eventually it got to the point where it was like, well, you have to take care of this or he's not going to be able to swallow because as you grow all, you know, everything inside you is growing too. Right. So he never had to get a, a G tube or anything. He was eating orally and, but still so having I, a little bit of trouble. 
Yeah. So I kind of skipped over that, I guess. So um, just because I was kind of going in order of which were the biggest issues. But yeah, I guess going back to when he was able to finally come home from the hospital when he was at, you know, after 10 weeks in the NICU, they basically gave up on bottles. And so he was getting everything through a, a tube. And at that point, it was just going through his nose. So when he came home, he was hooked up with that. He was hooked up with oxygen. Um, we were supposed to, you know, keep a pulse socks on his toe the whole time, which we ditched after one night because uh, a kid kicking that thing around, the alarm was going off like every hour. And it was like, yeah, no. Yeah, <laughs> I hear you. So, Remember yeah, those so, days. Yeah. So, um, so I want to say he was on oxygen only for probably a month after he came home, but the feeding, you have, it just wasn't happening with the bottles. So we went eventually had the G2 put in and, and that's mm -hmm. how he was fed that way for a long time. And then gradually we, he, we were able to introduce more and more bottles. And then I think by the time he was a year and a half, he actually, he decided he was done with it. He ripped it out one day. Wow. And so and at that point, we hadn't been using it that much. Like he just really was overcoming it. And he told you he was ready. Yeah. And he ripped it out one day and we were like, OK, you know, we called it. We called obviously we called his pediatrician. We're like, what? He's like, well, if you're really not using it anymore, like it's not it's fine. And he had no trouble transferring over to solids and liquid and. That's great. So the liquids was always, always the big problem. It yeah. was like once he got to the age where we could, you know, do solid foods, he never struggled with that. And then like, it's amazing because I think at some point parental instincts just short, sort of kick in and you know, on a daily basis, like what he can handle, what he can't. Mm -hmm. um, it's been eight and a half years and it's sometimes I know for me. So my son was born um, in April of 2014. So they're right around the same age and we're near Boston. So we get all of our care yeah. up at Boston children, but it is just going back and thinking about those early days. You think to yourself, how did we do this? All the doctor's appointments, all the surgeries are, my son had open heart surgery as well. And I, I remember coming into that room and seeing them with all the tubes. And, but then two days later, he was so vibrant and, and just full of life and felt better after the surgery. And it's, it's going back to those memories. You're just thinking, like, I know for my husband and I would just think like, how did we do it? And you're just on autopilot and you become an advocate for your yeah. child. Yeah. And you know, exactly like what they like, what they don't like, even though they're not talking yet at, at one and two, you know, them and, and you find your advocate voice. When did you find your advocate voice for your son? Yeah, I think it, I think it probably happened pretty quickly. Like even just going back to what I was talking about earlier about that doctor being like, oh, his, his mouth is small. It's like, I think part of that is just being a parent in general. And then in the 22Q world with all the stuff you're talking about with all the appointments and just constant uh, research you have to do to, to learn about all this stuff, you just sort of, I don't know. It's like, a I, to me, I just think it's like instincts kicking in that you're, you're just automatically going to start advocating for your child. And, and then with what I do for a living too, it gives me a platform to be able to speak about these things. And it's just like, you realize, okay, so as we learn about this, because our son or daughter has it, well, wouldn't it be better if this was something people knew about going into it, you know, going into any pregnancy and just understand, because the, the, I mean, the, the spectrum of the, the medical complications and, um, 
you know, the intellectual cop complications is, is wide, but like, I think if you had told me at the moment we got the diagnosis that he'll be eight and a half years old playing sports and yeah, he's a little bit behind in school and needs extra help, but you know, the medical stuff for the most part, and hopefully it stays this way. seems like it's behind us. The way it was like presented originally was just like, cause I think they're, they're sort of mentally trying to prepare you for, not, I don't know. The worst is not the way to put it, but just it's a serious thing. Right. And right. I, I'm kind of more of an optimistic, positive person by nature um, to the point that it's actually, as we kind of got past milestone after milestone, I sometimes like even in advance of doing this podcast, I was talking to my wife last night, like, what, what, what year did we do this? What year was this right? surgery? Like, I can't even remember some of them because <laughs> it's just like, they start to blur together. And, and I think, cause I'm so positive by nature. I like, Oh, my brain almost wants to forget some of that trauma from the past, but flipping those things from all these negatives into a positive is part of what I like to do, which is why I like to talk about this mm -hmm. stuff publicly and yeah. hopefully people learn about it along the way. Right. And just raising that awareness that when you get that diagnosis, know that there is a huge community of us out there that have all gone through this. But I know for us in 2014, I don't know about you, the only other person we knew at the time was Ryan Dempster. Yeah. That because we were Red Sox fans and my husband mentioned it. We were we were in Boston Children's and my my son was in the NICU and my husband's like, oh, Ryan Dempster's daughter has this. And I was like, who's Ryan Dempster? <laughs> yeah. Who was the first parent that you knew that had a child with 22Q? Well, to be honest, it was probably Ryan too, because, you know, just being in Chicago and his connection to the Cubs and I don't know if I made that connection right away. At that point, I was aware of the complications that he had had with his daughter. I don't know that I knew specifically what it was. In 2014, I think if you Googled, you know, what is the George syndrome? What is 22Q? You know, his foundation came up right away. Yeah, I remember reaching out to him and he was, he was and has been very, very helpful. So that that's probably it. And then talking to Ryan and Lindsay too, right away, I think. And really it's been the 22Q family foundation for, for the most part and just kind of staying in contact with them and anything I can possibly do at any point to help. The FAQ that they have on their website is like what I try to give people right away. Cause it's just like, right. it's all right here for you to, mm -hmm. to learn about whether you're a parent that's going through this or you're just somebody that wants to learn about it and know what it is. Right. And different ways to support and all of the supports that they offer are incredible. So we always shout out to them. Love Lindsay um, and the 22Q Family Foundation. I am just sitting here thinking, I can't imagine how difficult that was for you to go to work every single day, having all of these things happening at home with your son and having to compartmentalize it and, and leave it at home while you're at work and put on this face for the world and broadcasting. How did you manage that? I think my job just sort of helps because it's, it's um, covering football. There's, there's a lot of, there's most people in the world that are doing more important things than I am. <laughs> so like it's my job's fun. And so it probably gave me an outlet to just, sort of get away from that stuff um, instead of being like, oh, I have to go to work now. It, it's sort of just naturally that's where my brain has gone since I was a kid anyway, like sports. So mm -hmm. I, I think in, in 
in a way, yeah, it was, it was very hard, especially cause I travel a lot for my job and was traveling even more back then than I do now. So that like, I'll never forget. Um, we got him home, I think on Friday for the first time he comes home and I had to leave the next day to go to New York. Oh, that and, must've ripped you know, your my, heart out. Yeah. And I was, I was home the next day after that. Cause my trips are always really short, but it was just like, come on, like, uh, yeah, <laughs> you get the baby home and I had to leave. I think, but most of the times though, it kind of actually gave me an outlet to sort of, it was probably good mental therapy for myself without even realizing it. Um, right. But you also have to be careful with that. Cause if your job does that too much, then it's going to become a problem. Right. So, it's a balance. Yeah. Yeah. You enjoy what you do. You love sports. So yeah. I can see how that could be an outlet for you. Definitely. But yeah, no, I, it's still difficult. It's, it's difficult for any parent really in trying to take care of your family life, especially when you have a really critically sick child at home and then going and doing your real job. Cause you have to, to pay the bills. Um, it's hard. You mentioned the word autopilot earlier though. Like in looking back on it, that's kind of, I think that's kind of what it is. Like you just, again, I think that kind of goes for any, especially new, new parents mm-hmm. that have like, they go into it, whether there's complications or not, they just, they don't really know what to expect. And it's not easy, no matter what you got going on. So you just sort of, as parents, you just do it. Mm-hmm. You don't have a choice. You just do it. It's kind of weird to think about back then, just the amount of appointments. Um, Cause there was a one point, you know, he was getting outpatient speech, occupational therapy, physical therapy. Some of it was at our house. Some of it, we had to take them, you know, take him to uh, about 20 minutes away. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just a lot going on. Yeah. And what do you think, for you has been the biggest struggle just navigating your son's 22 Q. Probably schooling. Um, once we got past a lot of the medical stuff, probably by the time he was three, I, you know, it's not like he's in the clear. He sees a cardiologist every year. Yeah. I think just his, his development, um, mm-hmm. a lot of it's been speech. We, we went through, Without getting into too much of the specifics, we, when we first moved to the town we're in, we were kind of in a, we lived in this like really small corner of the town where we actually went to the next town, the school district over. Um, and I don't think that he was necessarily getting the, the help he needed there. Um, and so last year we moved just within our town to the other school district and it's made a, it's really made a huge difference. That's great. Um, yeah. And then I think us just sort of, I think there's a level of acceptance because you're always in sort of a stage of denial, I think, as parents that you're like, and I think I do this probably more than my wife. It's just like, the thing about James is he's always, he's always making progress. It's just the speed varies. And mm-hmm. so I'm sometimes I'm like, probably to a fault. I'm like, well, he's going to figure it out. Like, it's just, Cause that's how it happened. It happened with his feeding issues. It happened with, okay. He was probably talking a year later than he should have been, but he did. He got there. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, his little things like swimming has taken six different places. We've tried to get him to learn how to swim. And, but just in the last year, it's finally clicking, you know? So it's just stuff like that. Um, Mm -hmm. And, but I think with the schooling, it was just kind of tough that we had to get him in the right spot. We have to get him right with the right teachers and mm-hmm. um, get him the right services that he 
he needs. It was one thing that we had him do kindergarten twice, partially a few things went into that one. He was born premature in July. So he was supposed to be born in September and that would have put him in the next year's grade level anyway. Right. Like just if he had been born on time with no issues. Right. Um, so we always made that argument. And then um, the pandemic was while he was in kindergarten. And that was just like a complete wasted time. Once we went to <laughs> yes. homeschooling, like yes. it was just complete waste of time. So um, yep. we did that, but he's still, he's still like kind of behind his peers a little bit and we're just trying to give him the help he needs. And so I would recommend uh, looking into tutoring to parents that are, that are going through that too. Cause that's really helped. And that's mm -hmm. just done actually over the iPad. We, we do it that way virtually with someone who's not here, but because it's one-on-one -on -one and she's got the right programs and mm -hmm. strategies to do it. It was it's way more helpful than those giant zoom calls with 15 screaming kids on it. Yeah. Those, those, <laughs> those zoom calls are just hysterical. The teacher's just like, uh, can you turn your, turn your volume off? <laughs> like yeah. It's, it's, it's just, it's like hurting cats. It's awful. <laughs> that was honestly some of the hardest times <laughs> Yes, <laughs> because I, I, you know, I was stuck at home working too. My wife's an OT. So she had to oh. even like during the darkest days of the pandemic, she had to go see patients. Right. So oh she, she wasn't home and I'm trying to work and he's on, he's in kindergarten, the next room over. And oh my gosh. I think any oh. parent that, yeah. Any parent that went through that <laughs> knows that you were the teacher. Yeah. There's no other way to do it. No. Yeah. Like you, I, and so I remember we got to the point in like late April where I just literally gave up. I'm like, <laughs> this is not doing anything. <laughs> And I, we like, didn't finish the year. Yeah. Hopefully your teachers aren't listening, but yes. <laughs> yeah. No, no. They knew that at the time it was like, cause they started making things optional. Cause it was just, even yeah, the it teachers was, understood that it was. Yeah. Ridiculous. The teachers had checked out as well. Yeah. <laughs> they just, they were just like showing up at that point. Yeah. Right. We all were, I mean, we're, <laughs> we're all just trying to survive at that point. Exactly. Oh so, yeah. But that it, definitely set him back. Like for considering that was like such a crucial point in yeah. his development, that was not the best timing. Mm -hmm. And um, so we're still trying to recover from that a little bit, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have any really good quick stories of when you were on air and maybe him coming in the room and you being like, hang on, bud, hang on. Do you have any yes, good? <laughs> that definitely happened? Yes. Yeah, so I was working for NBC Sports Chicago at the time. And so there's a lot of TV stuff we were doing and it was all, almost all remote. Yeah. I think there was one time where I forgot to lock my door Oh no! And he, and he just came in and I don't know what my wife was doing, but it was just like, <laughs> okay. And I just put him on my lap and I'm like, here's my son. And it was actually kind of a cool moment and we had fun with it on, on TV. But um, yeah, that that's the one that comes to mind right away. And, and then, it was actually used to be the dog that would be the bigger problem because yeah. she was a barker and she would just start yapping when you know I'm live on live on air and it's just like this what are you gonna do? I mean, there's like nothing you can do at that point. No, no, that's that's hysterical. Um, well, that's good. What do you and James enjoy doing together as dad and son time? I think a lot of it is uh around sports. One of my favorite things is I coach high school football nearby and um and he loves coming to the practices and helping Aww. out so i'll bring him to practice and then the, just kind of hand him over to the team managers and they'll put him to work oh that's great and that's one of the 
one of the things so there's two things about james that um i would say about like him he loves to help and he loves to know how things work mm-hmm. so if you if you give him like jobs that he's never done before it's like the best of both worlds because it's like he feels like he's helping you and he's learning about something like, Oh, how does Mm -hmm. that work? You know, at the same time. So, you know, anytime I can take him to a sports game, Mm -hmm. something like that, or, Mm -hmm. you know, once we get into the spring, we can get outside more, just play baseball. He loves golf. He really loves golf. Does he really? Yeah. Nice. And so just hitting some golf balls around, we actually started getting him some lessons last year. So that's great. That'll be great bonding time with you guys and just getting outside and just getting him active. And it sounds like he loves the football, which is so cute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's, he does. He's, he's funny. Cause he's either, he goes from shy to very talkative as soon as he gets comfortable with you. Like there's, there's not much of an in-between. Yep. So he'll go from like very quiet and it's, somewhat of a uh an issue at school because like if he doesn't know kids he just sort of shuts down and yeah doesn't introduce yeah. himself or things like that mm-hmm. but then as soon as he gets comfortable with you it's almost like too much on the other side like yeah like he's just, he's like talking <laughs> he'll talk your ear off um but it's also really <laughs> cute because we have car rides where he'll just ask me a hundred questions in 10 minutes yep yep <laughs> so, and you're just like bud <laughs> What song do you want to listen to, bud? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. My son's similar He, but he has no filter. So he'll like randomly go up to someone and just be like, hi, what's your name? And I'm just like, we don't know them. <laughs> so <laughs> kind of have to shut that down quick. Um, yeah. but he, he is definitely a heart stealer. It sounds like very similar to James on this podcast. I've had a lot of moms share their perspective and you being the dad and the father and the protector and the nurturer of your family. How was that for you having James be your first son and he is going through all this stuff and your wife is also going through a lot because she went into emergency surgery. What was that like for you being the father and what, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, it, it's, um, it was really hard. I mean, cause you know, the emergency C-section and I've told my wife this, like I was convinced going in there that one of the two of them wasn't going to make it. Like I kind of accepted that because oh that's God. how like scared I was. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, like it all turned out okay. Mm-hmm. But it, to the point that I almost felt like I overreacted when like the next day. But then the funny thing was that when we got transferred to Lurie a month later and like they give you all this paperwork to take with you, um, I remember my wife was reading it on the car ride down as we're like going down with the ambulance. Um, his APGAR score was like extremely low. Like oh. Things like they didn't even like tell us how bad the situation actually was like in oh, hindsight, wow. um, probably because they're just trying to keep us calm and all that. So, but it sort of like validated the fears I had in the moment. I was like, okay, I'm I like, I thought that was really scary. So yeah, it was um, yeah. because you're at this because you're worried about both of them at the same time. And obviously, at the same time, you're not the person going through like you're not the one having surgery and being cut open. So it's it's uh, you're just trying to be as supportive as possible. But mm-hmm. um, it was definitely like. A very scary, tough thing to go through. Yeah. Um, 
would helpless be an appropriate word to describe how you felt in that moment? Yeah. Cause you didn't really know what to do. And it was just like, I think I accepted in the moment, like there's nothing I can really do for the baby. At this mm-hmm. point. Like that is just in the doctor's hands. I just mm-hmm. gotta like keep being positive to Krista, my wife. And it yeah. turned out to be good lessons because we not at all the same thing, but when Libby was born, she was she ended up being premature too, six weeks. Really? Also oh. C section. Um my my wife was dealing with preeclampsia during that pregnancy. And so uh, same sort of thing, like it ended up being a scary emergency <sighs> C-section, but having been through what we've been through, like I, I remember going in there like with a way different, like Perfect. optimistic attitude and just yeah. sort of, it's like, oh, I've been here before. And uh, <sighs> I've always kind of wondered that with parents that, yeah. Yeah. It's a good I, point. I, do, I have a, the one piece of advice too, I would share with, with kids that are around James's age, or it sounds like yours age, like the one thing that's a constant sort of concern, especially on the schooling side is just like, is he going to make friends? Does he have friends? You know, is he getting bullied? Um, and I would just say that I, one of the coolest things that I was able to develop with James like probably a year and a half two years ago is just a a level of trust with Mm -hmm. him that like if anything happens at school Mm -hmm. like daddy will take care of it like Mm -hmm. you just don't keep it inside and I think that's probably a really hard a hard thing because you don't really ever know what's going on at school and that's like I think hard for any parent yes Um, it was actually this little side story, we were coming home. Well, he had a, one of his card, his yearly cardiology appointment. And so he had to go to school late that day. Cause we had to do the appointment early in the morning and appointment goes fine. And I'm just driving him. I don't think he realized he had to go to school afterwards. So he just like broke down crying in the car. And, but it was like a weird reaction. It wasn't like a, like, you're just like, don't want to go to school that day. Cause that happens. It was like, uh, like this was different to the point that um, I was like, James, what's going on? And it turned out like there was a kid who was being mean to him. And like I had to pull the car over and like get out of the car and give him a hug because it just like it just broke my heart. Um, And we ended up handling it and it was Mm -hmm. it turned out to be okay. But like I told him that day, I was like. Mm-hmm. anything like this is ever going on you have to tell me and we'll mm-hmm. make it better um right. so i think that that has helped because i'm sure that like a lot of parents going through this that's like their fear all the time and that would just be my advice like whatever you can do to open that line of communication if you can if you're in that position to have that communication yeah um, yeah no it's a great great point especially with our 22q kiddos because you know for some of us they're they can't communicate what's happening at school, but they know that it hurts. And I know for myself too, finding my son's community, finding what he can become a part of so that he has people is been a big struggle for us. The teachers have been fantastic and his one-to-one's fantastic, but it is terrifying as a parent of a 22 kid, just finding their, their people, finding their community, finding their friends. And it hurts your heart. It really does. 
Yeah, because it's just it's for us at this point, it's probably the biggest challenge. In James's case, he always kind of defaults to younger kids. My son too. Yeah, which makes sense because right, they're not quite up to the peers that are in their, you know, at yeah. their grade levels. So and that's okay. I think but what's cool about it, I think that's one of the reasons why he's such a great big brother. Yeah. Because they're like best friends, even though their age gap is seven yeah. years. And they'll have each other. Yeah. Which is sweet. Very sweet. James's speech is um it's it's fine, but it it takes um it's he he like talks slower, like it just takes him a while. He gets caught up on words and trying mm-hmm. to he'll forget words that he knows and just like so he'll stall. And so like same mm-hmm. thing. I think when he's just trying to communicate with his friends, it's not happening at the 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 level that they're used to. And so it's and it's not really their fault. It's just it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. It's really hard. But I love your point and your advice of building that trust and let it just communicating, you know, life's hard and I'm here for you always. And mom and I are here for you always is so important. I think that's great. And I do want to ask you, you know, for parents listening that are maybe just starting this journey or just finding out they got diagnosed, what advice do you want to give them? Uh, My advice would be as hard as it is, just take a deep breath because there's, I mean, this goes back to sports a lot too. It's just control what you can control. And as hard as that is to accept sometimes, like you don't really have any other choice. So you just, I think you have to step back and not panic right away and just do everything you can to learn, you know, maybe listen to this podcast, right? Like whatever it is, just take what's coming at you with an open mind mm-hmm. that that you're always going to be able to find the joy because there's I promise you there's going to be plenty of moments of joy and just like it, to to see James the way he interacts with other kids and just how sweet he is um and just you know just random things he does and says like there are a lot of things that are quote unquote normal along the way, like that just all kids do and say at times. So it's, it's, it's easier said than done, but that's my advice is just try to learn everything you can from the right resources, like stuff like this podcast and Mm -hmm. the 22 Q family foundation, things like that. And just try to as hard as you can be to just stay optimistic and positive. And cause I promise you that there's going to be plenty of smiles and laughs along the way. Oh yes. And I liked what you said, find the joy. I love it. It's not, it's not easy, but it's definitely possible. Definitely. And what has James taught you about yourself? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think he's taught me how to be a good friend in a lot of ways. Really? It's a weird, that's a weird, maybe a weird angle to go, but like, we really do have like this bond. I feel like where we are best friends every day, like and probably a level of patience. Oh yeah. <laughs> as well because you you just have he is he is the champion staller of the world. <laughs> like I know all kids stall but I'm telling you this kid this kid can find any little thing to stall whether it's 
going to the bathroom or having to go to school or having to go to bed. It is unbelievable the things that this kid can pull off. And he like plays mind tricks with you. So like being patient, but also like, because we are such good friends, like I feel like I can mess with them at the same time. Um, and, and just be like, James, you're just being completely ridiculous right now. I'm not putting up with this. <laughs> so like, I have oh, a question. <laughs> you sound very similar to my husband and my son where say at bedtime, uh, my, my husband would be like, I'll give him a tub and stuff. And we'll get into the, they'll get into the bathroom and they'll start laughing for like 10 minutes and I'll poke my head in and I'll be like, are we getting ready for bed? And they'll just be hanging out, like laughing and making each other laugh. Do you guys have the same sort of relationship? Absolutely. And and part of that is because he's, he's so good at manipulating you into also stalling (laughs) and just sucks you right in. And then you you realize that it's worked on you because you you spent the last 10 minutes just messing around and instead (laughs) of. Be like, no, you're supposed to go to bed 30 minutes ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yep. I love it. No, 100%. I like to ask this question to all of the parents I have on, but when you had all those doctors come into that room that day in the NICU, and if you could go back in time to that moment and tell yourself something, what would you tell yourself now knowing and living with James for eight and a half years? What would you tell yourself in that moment? That it's going to be okay. Yeah, I think that's the number one thing. And maybe that's a little bit easier for for us to say because I think I, I understand like a lot of parents listening to this probably like I, I, I think that I've been able to acknowledge that we're maybe on the, the fortunate side of, you know, the amount of complications. The fact that so many of his things were able to be corrected. I know it's not the case for all parents and for all these kids. Um, but regardless, like it is going to be okay. And there are, like I said earlier, there's going to be plenty of moments of joy. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, it's not going to be easy. There's going to be lots of things and you're going to have plenty of frustrating days and just reach a breaking point with, uh, especially insurance companies. There's nothing that drives me up a wall more than these surprise bills that come constantly. And I wish we had a way to, you know, fix that as a country, but you know, again, that goes back to control what you can control and a lot of that you can't. So yeah, can you control what you can control and just tell yourself it's going to be okay. Try to remain as positive as you possibly can. You are extremely optimistic and I like it a lot. (laughs) No, that's good. That's good though. You need to be, I, so I'm the optimistic one in our family. My husband's the thinker, the planner. Um, but I did want to ask you too, one last question. If James ever listens to this someday, what would you like him to know? What would you like to say to James? Ooh, um, just that I'm proud of him. And I mean, I, I really wouldn't change anything. I mean, he's, he's just given us so much joy and, um, you know, man, like emotional to think about, but, uh, he's every milestone he gets through and reaches. I'm just so proud of him all the time. and every single day he does something to every single day he does something to annoy me and he does something to uh <laughs> to make me <laughs> proud too because there's always something he does where I'm like wow you just did that buddy like right? and a lot another thing I'd say is like a lot of it's just, just these kids got to gain confidence and that's one of the things that, that he battles all the time and so I, I would I would tell him something I tell him all the time already which is just 
you can do it, buddy. You really can. Mm-hmm. So just have that confidence and you can do it and reach the next milestone. Yeah. Well, he's a lucky kid to have you as his dad. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. No, he is. And I just want to say thank you so much, Adam, for being on today. And I know that this will bring comfort to maybe a dad that is going on this journey for the first time and hasn't heard a dad's perspective. So thank you for sharing your perspective. Thank you for sharing your very personal family story with us today. And I wish nothing but the best for you and your family and your wife and live. And of course, for James. So thank you again. Thank you so much, Becky. And if uh, if anyone ever has like any questions that they want to reach out to me, you can find me on social media, shoot me a message. Uh, and I'm always happy to, to talk to families going through this. So I just want to make sure I put that out there too. Thank you, Adam. I appreciate that. Thanks again. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast and sharing James's story with the world. Your struggles and triumphs are admirable, and I wish you all nothing but the absolute best. And thank you for reminding all of us to continue to control what we can control. Thanks again. And to all of our listeners, I just want to say thank you for sharing and liking and subscribing our podcast. You are helping us raise awareness about 22Q. So thank you so much. And if you'd like to contact me, you can email me at 22qpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, or if you would like to be on the podcast, let me know. And never forget, 22Q family, that you are not.